Hi, I'm appending this intro uh, to the program that follows. Uh, this is a, a program where Dr. Sam Juni, a recognized Freudian and an expert in psychology, uh, takes on the, as a patient, so to speak, Yosef, Paro, and the Sarah Mashkin and the Sarah Ophim analyzing their dreams. What you're going to hear is going to be somewhat shocking if you're not into Freudian dream analysis. I'm going to say right here that uh, you know the program, of course, was totally unrehearsed, and uh, you know, Dr. Juni took it and ran with the ball the way he would uh, if he'd be actually seeing uh, an actual live patient. I want it to be clear, though, that uh, the assumptions that he makes and the conclusions that he draws are entirely his own, uh, inventive and interesting though they might be, in, in no way is reflective of my own uh, feelings about uh, these very, very important biblical figures, especially Yosef, Yosef Atzadik, or anyone really connected officially with uh, the Yeshiva of Newark and uh, our, the greater family that we have of IDT. Still, I think that the episode is worthwhile listening to. It definitely presents uh, somebody who is standing in two worlds and who is doing a, a, a very inventive, although I can't say a job that I can really uh, commend or recommend, but still, I think it's something that's worthwhile to hear and to perhaps, um, but I would just say that uh, listener discretion is advised. Okay, now on with the show. You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. This is Standing in Two Worlds with Dr. Sam Juni from Yerushalayim Ir HaKodesh. Sam, we enter in the Orthodox world and perhaps any Jewish uh, congregations that are aligning themselves with the standard Torah portion readings to a section of the Torah, which is probably the most detailed in many ways. It's the most story-like. Thomas Mann, of course, uh, turned it into his own uh, great novel, um, uh, it, it became a big hit off Broadway and then on Broadway, Joseph and the Technical Dreamcoat. I'm talking about, of course, about the story of Yosef, which uh, is an unusual section of the Torah from Parshas Vayeshev, uh, which is where we begin uh, this week, till I would say probably till the end of Parshas Vayechi, but especially Vayeshev, what we call Parshas Vayeshev, Parshas Miketz, and most of Parshas Vayigash. It is a, a tableau, a drama. Um, and it seems to be, in many ways, centered around the significance of dreams. Uh, dreams become so important in ways that later in the Bible, of course, interpretation of, of, uh, of Yosef's dream, Joseph's dream, the dream interpretation Yosef himself gives to the two prisoners that he finds himself with, the chief butler and the chief baker. Then, of course, Pharaoh's dream, Pharaoh's dream. 
as well. So I want to do a little game with you, Sam, is because as you are a uh, the last Freudian standing, perhaps, um, and you are very well uh, versed in dream interpretation, I want to play a game with you, if you don't mind. And the game is I'm going to take on the role. I'll, I'll do four parts today. I'll play Yosef. I'll play the Sarah Mashkim, the Sarah Ophim, and Pharaoh himself. You will play yourself as the uh, psychology, resident psychologist who is going to deal with uh, the dreams that are being presented. And I want you to try to give your own angle and your own interpretation to them. Um, <coughs> okay, now, all right, so I think that's a good enough setup. I'm 17 years old. Uh, I have a lot of, uh, I'm, I'm a part of a big family. Uh, a mixed family. There are, uh, uh, you know, I, there's my mom who unfortunately uh, has died recently. And then I have three other sort of mothers uh, as it would be. Uh, and I have uh, 11 other siblings, 11 boys. And I've, uh, and I had these dreams. And here's the first one, doctor. It's really, it's really, pressing on my mind and I, I need to tell it to someone and here it is um in my dream i was doing something i guess was a, a little bit strange i wasn't really used to doing it <clears throat> but i found myself um with my brothers we were all in a field and we were binding these sheaves like really making them real tough and strong in a field and you know doc it was a little bit funny because you know we basically deal with cattle and, 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 and other sorts of smaller animals. And here I was in the field with, with my brothers. And, and then something happened. Um, like, like, the, like the one I was binding, it somehow like had a life of its own. It started to, to, to sort of stand up. And, 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 and then I was gone. And every, it was like the, the bundles sort of had a life of their own. And the bundles that all my brothers were working on uh, started to circle my bundle. And they bowed down to them. And, and it was a really striking dream to me. Uh, doctor, what do you think it means? Okay. So I have to tell you that um, I did read your file and your history. And if I can summarize it, it's kind of a remarkable family you're in, at least based on the time that I'm living in, which is a little bit later than uh, your no mom, right? Um, yeah. As far as I can tell, your mom was the favorite um, of your uh, father's wives. I just know of four wives altogether. I wouldn't be surprised if there were more, but okay, so let's say so there were four wives and your mom was the favorite and now we have a situation where at least everybody in your family reports that you are the favorite of um, 11 okay so that kind of replicates that you also come from a tradition where at least um, um, your father and your grandfather both grew up in a um, an environment of um, I would say <sighs> deadly competition with siblings Okay, the way it's up to me, you don't have a very, um, shall we say, cooperative um, relationship with your siblings either. So that kind of just starts off the whole presentation here of the entire patient as a kind of um, outstanding. You know, it's not a settled feeling. It sounds like contention 
a competition and a competition to the point of um, people wanting to kill each other, which is a little bit fierce, at least by, by today's standards. I'm sure in the standards when, when the, you lived, it was uh, quite common, but in, in, in modern day standards, which is what some, my entire approach to dream analysis and case analysis is based on, it's kind of unusual and it's not, shall we say, a, a, um, a pedestrian situation. It's, a, it's quite a um, lively situation from, from that kind of perspective. Uh, now, your dream itself, I just need to tell you if I can stop for a moment and speak to Rabbi Kivalevitz to say that I'm going to tell you when I'm writing Mr. Joseph is um, what was the um, most um, palpable feeling you had during this dream? Not that you, you told me this stands up and this one sits down and this one bows down and, and, and it's unusual, you're usually dealing with animals. But if you can describe the emotional atmosphere for you, what feeling dominated um, you while you were experiencing this dream? That would be like a key question I would ask of any patient. I, I think, you know, still acting as the role of, 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 of the word vihine. It was so vivid, doctor. It was so vivid. It was sort of like, like each one was sort of like a different section that was so alive to me. Um, the, uh, you have the, to oh, talk to me about feelings, sir, if I may interrupt you. Uh, in other words, when I say feelings, I mean emotionally, not a surprise. That's not an emotion. An emotion is something that, um, well, I can give you some examples. There is hate, there is love, there is fear. Um, there is a, uh, a, a, a dreadful anticipation. There is joy, there is elation. Those are called feelings. The other things are basically constructs about the narrative. And I, that's quite important too, but I have my own, basically, uh, shall we say, the notes that were written about you in the file. So I have that. I know the events. Let me just get the feelings from you. Yeah, I, 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 so let me answer you, Doc. I think that the feeling that was most uh, strong was that we went from something where we were a team together and I felt a sense of of, of, of strength and superiority I felt in my dream okay. that it wasn't, I wasn't just part of a team anymore. And it wasn't even about me. It was, it was so incredible that this, this, uh, the sheaf, which is an inanimate object started, you know, taking on almost, you know, okay, so if anthropomorphic, I may, became I like a person. If I may cut you off, so incredible, whatever, still not um, uh, feelings, um, feeling strength, eh, okay. I, I felt better than them. I felt like I was. Got it. That's got where it. I felt okay. that this was a vindication that I was actually something okay. better than them. And they finally realized that they, in a way, need me and they have to bow down to me. I understand you. Is okay. that, does that okay. answer your question? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. So I just want to, I'm going to give you like a, a, a little introduction that I give to patients in general, and then we will go on to two sections. I'll go on, first of all, to um, just talking to you a little bit about the interpretation, and then sharing some of my notes with our, um, shall we say, a psychotic episode, insofar as the experience is concerned. Primarily, there's no object constancy. 
which means that an object can change its form, can become bigger, can become smaller, uh, can become another object, so to speak, become transformed. And there's also no object permanence, which means things come and go without any expectation that if it's there, it continues existing or whatever. So essentially, this is a, a psychotic experience. It's not an experience that matches reality perception insofar as the ego structures reality. And it's generally assumed that it's a wish fulfillment of sorts. In other words, if I have wishes and I can't uh, really um, um, actuate them, I can't make them come to life because of circumstances. In the dream, I kind of work towards fantasizing that fulfillment and then getting rid of whatever it is bothers me about this current reality. Okay, so we have that straight. So let's just talk about um, what I see over here in the notes, okay? Um, one of the descriptions, some caution actually it was brought up about you is that you are rather effeminate, that you uh, do things that are basically you preen and, 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 um, and groom yourself in a way which is much more typical of women and raising some eyebrows about you, okay? Then there is also a note that you're socially stupid, all right? And, and that's, uh, I mean, that's, those aren't my words. Those are the words of the, of the reporters there. And basically what you have over here is that you have a competition with your brothers. They don't like you, okay? I mean, they don't, they don't like each other. They have a lot of fights too, but all of them are united against not liking you. Um, they particularly detest the fact that your favorite of your dad, which they see as a... Uh, a uh, carryover from your mother being the favorite wife over all their others, where they had to start bothering or whatever for your father's presence. They don't like you, okay? Everybody knows it. Every um, four-year-old who reads the Chumash knows it, okay? And then you go ahead and act not only in a way that um, doesn't admit that, but pretends that it's not like that at all. And you try to hang out with them and then tell them all kinds of information that should make them dislike you even more. And then you say, oh boy, where did that come from? I was just uh, telling you and I was just reporting. So that social stupidity is there. The effeminate aspect is there. And then you tell me a dream, which is like the most, uh, shall we say, um, easy to interpret homosexual dream that I've ever heard, okay? And then to quote your words, it just stood up and had a life of its own. Now, I don't usually do this, you know, but here we are doing this and then everybody's doing it. And guess what? I'm the strongest and the firmest or whatever and everybody's bowing down to me. So I think the straightforward interpretation that I wouldn't tell you, but I would have in my notes here is that we have a lot of homosexual anxiety. Okay, and the homosexual anxiety, if I have to attribute it, something is growing up without a mom, um, having an intense competition with brothers, which means that you have to uh, basically um, um, distinguish yourself, and you're not going to distinguish yourself by being stronger than somebody who's 30 years older than you, or whatever, or being able to be a better shepherd. So how do you distinguish yourself? You start preening yourself, you start uh, paying attention to aspects which are feminine, and there when you have, uh, let's say, girls competing with each other, at least in your culture, age is not a factor. In fact, being young is even better. Looking pretty um, um, trumps any kind of strength, any kind of wisdom. 
And of course, siding up to your dad. And there we get into some Oedipal issues, which, which really are usually the source of much of the standard homosexual um, personality. And that is that when mom is not around and you want to make sure that your, shall we say, corner of the family, which at this point is only you, is still kept in its favorite position. So you try to be a mom substitute and you kind of um, feminize yourself. And there you are um, trying to essentially tell your dad, now is not time to go over to uh, start um, consorting with one of the other wives because I'm here and I'll try to be as much of a substance as I can. Now, of course, this is fantasy. If this were reality, you really have to, you would have to be medicated very quickly. But in fantasy, it comes out and that is a fantasy solution, at least let's say for a three-year-old and a four-year-old, which is what your mentality is like when you are a, um, in the dream. So that's your wish fulfillment. Basically, I just wish that I can, first of all, compete against all these people and show them up because I'm the most um, sexual here. But then again, are you sexual? But then again, you're a man, not a woman. So that gets a little bit distorted that since we have the blessing or the sanction of non-object um, permanence here, you can be a man, you can be a woman, depending on what's happening. So you can you can beat them in terms of aggressive competition, but you can also beat them until, uh, in, in, in a way of immortalizing the um, favorite status uh, that um, your mom had as exclusive partner for your dad. Okay, so this is a mixture of what I would tell you and what I would tell uh, right to myself, but it's clear that homosexual anxiety is there, or if you want to put it in oblivion terms, you really are starting with a horrible inferiority complex, and you're trying to make up for it by becoming great and much stronger and much better, and essentially, even though that sounds odd, those two statements say the same thing. Okay, because the first stresses psychosexual development in a very somatic level. The second stresses the weakness that's implicit in that kind of psychosexual stance in terms of interpersonal relationships. So, Doc, I, I, I possible that the bundle that we talked about, um, which you know, it takes a lot of work to get it to to to, to harvest it just right and and tie mm-hmm. it. Is that sort of like like a woman's trousseau? Is that sort of like a woman who's being, uh, you know, who's being readied uh, for her wedding night? Is that sort of what do you think it's like? You think it might be just a reenactment of the the uh, uh, initial competition between your mother and her sister as to who's right and who's wrong, and it turns out that this one won and that one, and they shouldn't have won. Okay, so. The solution to that is that any psychological experience is overdetermined, which means symbolisms are not limited to one. And essentially what you can do is peel away layers of symbolism. What I gave you is the most blatant one, which if you want to be statistical, I would say probably accounts for about hmm, 60% of the variance of what's going on there. But there are additional layers. In other words, we can go ahead at each of the elements in the dream and then I'll do the same thing. How does this make you feel? How does that sheath make you feel? How does that bowing make you feel? And then analyze where that comes from. But um, I think the crowd probably did. Yeah, I came to you later. I have the second dream. Um, and um, yeah, I, I have to tell you, Doc, I sold it over to my brothers first. But but here's the dream. And again. that was very wise of you, <laughs> if I may comment. Yes. Well, you know, I, I really felt it was something they needed to hear. 
uh, here's the second dream. And, um, and in this dream, it was sort of, um, there, I was sort of like a Superman, uh, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were, were bowing down to me. And, you know, I, I wasn't a star. I, I sort of me, but I was up like in the, in the planets and they, and, and, and the stars and the planets, they were all bowing down to me, even the sun and the moon. What do you think that means? Okay. So um, what we're dealing with over here is the same Oedipal issue, but it's, you're, again, I would say I would put this a little bit more primitive. I think that the wishes you're coming up with over here, I, I think we're hearkening back to about age two now. And that's the, the notion that starts off that every child sees their father as omnipotent, as being able to achieve everything. And if you look at the origins of omnipotence, it really has to do with deity. In other words, if I have to be, let's say, blunt from a two-year-old's point of view, dad is God. Okay? God is superior, can accomplish everything. And if you speak to any two-year-old in therapy, I do it in diagnostics, not in therapy, but they'll tell you, my dad can do anything. Okay, you know what my dad can do? My dad can lift the, 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 the strongest boulder. My dad can make it rain. My dad can make the world stop. My dad can make people die. Come on, everything I can do, okay? And here you are that Joseph is coming in. You are coming in and saying that in my fantasy, right? I am more superior than any. And, and you also have to, to realize that when you have a major age, age gap among siblings, the siblings themselves um, attain the status of dad to a certain extent, like they become dad substitutes. And many people who, who do familial analysis know that this kind of relationship exists. So essentially here you are trying to make sure that you are more powerful, more all powerful, more omnipotent than any of your siblings and of your dad also. So that is as edible as it comes and it really pre-stages the homosexual adaptation, which happens later on. I'd say it happens more like at age five or six. And here you're at age two where you're still competing, but a very basic level of basically being in charge of everything, being in charge of the world. Okay, I can see that you are reacting to that. So I will let you get it out. Ed said the same thing, sort of, uh, doctor. He said, you know, you know, he got upset at me when I told him this dream. He didn't get upset the first time, but he got upset uh, this time. Uh, and he said, let me just say, knowing your dad, I'm not so sure he was upset at all. I think it was just show like your dad has a history. When I read the rest of the case file of kind of, you know, putting on a big bluster when we go, when the guys do something, then in the back of his mind saying, hey, look at my boys. They know how to do things. They know how to kill a whole town or whatever. So don't take the criticism from dad so seriously. Well, but, but you but know, your but dad he... basically was a smart man and he must have read some Freud. Because you knew that you were talking about wishful thinking here, and yeah. then he yells at you. That's right, and and he actually said that that, that he was the sun, and he said my mom was yeah. the moon. He's a smart man. He's a smart man. Yeah, and 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 you're right. I have to. And tell then his you. math wasn't that great, of course, but that's okay. I mean, he kind of added one or subtracted one, but that doesn't matter because the truth is, in the dream, your math goes out anyway. It doesn't matter. You can have five hundred brothers after you instead of. 11. That's okay. Well, well, I can tell you, my, my brothers were not happy uh, with that. I could tell that they didn't have exactly, they didn't smile at me. I don't think they needed that. Your brothers know that you are like um, a thorn in their sides and that you basically 
are co-opting for the day when your dad goes that you're going to be in charge and like wreak havoc on them. So, and I think they really are right too, because you seem to have that kind of streak there, especially based on your fantasies. Yeah. Well, I guess I made a mistake there. So, uh, Sam, let's now, uh, of course, uh, he gets uh, referred to as the Bala Halamot, the sort of like the master of dreams, this guy, this dream person. And it's interesting. The dreamer, the dreamer. Right. The but dreamer. even more than just a, a cholem, he's a Bala Halamot. He's actually somebody who is. Uh, I, mean, that, I guess that's all he is. <laughs> as as, as if. Dreamer. Yeah. Okay. Right. Well, anyway, he uh, after a lot of vicissitudes and interesting um, twists and turns, especially it's interesting, especially when you talk about his home, you would say his homosexuality uh, aspect that's there. Of course, he gets involved. No, no, it's latent. Sir, it's latent homosexuality. I have no reason to assume that this fellow actually had conscious homosexual problems. Because because I can tell you uh, if I'm still Yosef role playing. This was the hottest woman you could think of, and I was really very, very aroused by her, and I was able to somehow resist, but she ended up punishing me. Let me also say that I'm not so convinced that you were aroused by her as aroused by the way of being able to undercut your slave master, because you can get a lot of bennies if the uh, the wife of your of your oppressor is on your side or is trying to make things nicer for you. It's like getting friendly with the warden in prison, and it's not usually done because you like the warden. It's just you know on which side your bread is buttered. So if I can be a little bit cynical about well ultimate <laughs> sexual makeup, I shall do that. <laughs> well, anyway, I could just tell you that it didn't turn out so well for me then. Um, I didn't get killed, but I ended up getting thrown into what's um, called the base Hasohar. And it's not a fun place to be. I can tell you that. And um, the uh, I was there for a while and uh, there were two guys that were with me. And I'm going to now go over to them and let and I'm going to let them talk to you. So here's the first one. The fellows, one of them is the uh, former because he's been deposed, uh, the head of uh, the butler of of Imparo's household of providing uh, the the best wine, the best vintage uh, around, and he has been uh, stripped of his job. Uh, there was a, an incident where uh, there was some some dirt or or an insect or something in his cup. And that was, uh, even though he wasn't the one serving it, ultimately he lost his authority and was placed in a place called the Beis Sohar, almost, I guess, to decide if maybe he was trying to poison Baro. Uh, the other person was the, is the baker. He's called the Sar Ofim. Not sure exactly what he, you know, I think there was a rock in one of the pieces of, of, of the loaves of bread. And because of that, he was placed in prison in order to investigate uh, his status. But both of them have been there for quite a while. And what happened was, is that they have a dream in the same night. And somehow, um, they both are very, very upset about this dream. The Bible recounts to us, and that might be in your notes as well, about these two men, said, we've had this dream. And nobody was able to explain it to us. 
And Yosef steps in, of course, and says, well, why don't you tell it to me? So here is the dream of the Sarah Mashkim or the head butler. And I'm going to say it over to you as if Yosef wasn't there, but Dr. Juni was there. So, Doc, here, here's my dream. Um, there was a, uh, a, 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 vine, a vine with, with grapes right in front of me. Um, and this vine had three uh, branches to it. And it's all of a sudden it started to flower and started to grow. It started to, uh, to develop like instantaneously. And it started getting these very luscious globules of grapes. And, and, and when I saw that happening, uh, I happened to find in my hand, uh, incredibly wasn't there before, Paro's cup a cup that Paro drank from. And I went over to these, to these luscious grapes that were developing and I squeezed them. And it was like beautiful wine that went into the cup. And then I was able to, and Paro was there, and I was able to give the cup to Paro. And that was, that's my dream. Okay. Do you want to like talk about the other fellow's dream too? Because I, I sense over here that we're perceiving this really from Joseph's perspective and that there's something interesting about how he construes them both and interprets it through his own ego. So let's hear the other one's dream. All right. As well. Okay. Well, all right. Okay. Well, you know, I'm the, um, here, here it is. Um, here's my dream, the baker. Uh, the head of the the head of the the head baker of the, the baking institute of Egypt. Yes. Um, well, um, there were actually. I was in, in my. I, I saw myself in my dream, and I'm and in myself I saw there were three fancy baskets on top of my head. Um. Now on on the top basket. There was uh, the stuff that I knew somehow in my dream that that's the stuff that Paro would love to eat. I don't know. Maybe it was a it was like the type of Danish he liked or or the eclair. And a bird was eating that from that top basket while it was balanced on my head. That's my dream. Okay, so I have to say the second one is not as part where you say, I saw myself in my dream, which is an interesting description. And that's often used by people who use a, um, a, a mode of dealing with themselves of self-distancing. It's called hysteria in the psychiatrical literature, and it's called splitting in the psychoanalytical literature, which means kind of you are observing yourself. And many of us, when we have dreams, we realize that we are there as the producer or the author watching this play unfold where you think it's an independent play, but you know that you're in charge of it. So well, let's hold so, that. So, so, so well, the baker was actually, Sam, the one who, who meant, who emphasizes that he says that yes. um, if, if you look in the verse in the Bible that I'm sort of like paraphrasing, he says that um, 
I also was in my dream. Afani bechavomi. I'm also. I also am there and in my dream. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like he is emphasizing that he's happy okay. or he's seeing himself. So maybe that's something that he can give you something to bite into about the, the yeah, baker. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but you know, again, I'm trying to um, prioritize. See, I always thought the bird symbol. I mean, again, I'm I, you're the doctor here, but. Um, I'm, I'm just talking as myself now. I thought you were going to be zeroing in on the bird. Yes, oh, I yeah. would if I, if I were Carl Gustav Jung, okay? Because Jung has a lot to say about that, but I have like a visceral response to <laughs> you, which makes me not want to pursue that. Um, so if you'll excuse me, I'd like to... I'm saying there was... Yes. And the bird was eating, you know, the, like, like, for example, in the, you know, the, the butler's dream, um, you know, the nobody's drinking yet. The dream ends with Paro mm-hmm. with Paro basically yes. having the cup. Whereas in the uh baker's dream, there is actually eating going on. The bird is eating. Yes, and it's eating from the top of the head, and, and it conjures up to me a vulture trying to you know, take dealing with a cadaver, which may have been what cued Joseph in saying this guy ain't gonna make it too far. Mm-hmm. Because the birds are eating, you know, from him from the top of his head. It doesn't sound good, but again, that's 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 young and I really I, I really want to avoid that for now. If if you'll let me, okay. I want to I want to go to your description of the first one. Okay, I have to say that um, we dealt before with the shall we say the um 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 the stages of self identity and sexual identity. Then we moved back to omnipotence. We're really going back now to what we call the oral stage, which is really the first psychosexual stage. And I have to tell you that the description, at least the way you read it in the Bible of those grapes, sounded so like I would call them orally erotic. In other words, you can just change a couple of those terms and come up with like the uh, the um, the most colorful Chaucer writing that you can. You know, they're luscious and they're squeezing and you're taking stuff and stuff is coming out. I don't have to go very far with you um, that uh, that it that has very much of a sexual flavor to it, but more primitive, more primitive than the others. And um, so you think the cup is sort of like has a vaginal aspect? To I, it? I don't know. I, I hear all these just. Just the description there, if I didn't listen to the content, just to the flavor of your description, I would say, okay, this has to be X-rated regardless of what we're talking about. It doesn't sound good. And and it's X-rated not in terms of, let's say, having illicit sexual relationships, but just the the, the content itself just sounds like very primitive and, and very raw. And I'd rather, you know... (laughs) <laughs> not do this in mixed public okay well, what, what about what, what about the fact that um the the butler has this immediacy of things happening so quickly you know it's you know it, it starts off as a vine and mm-hmm. then it starts you know it, it, it has the shoots and the shoots start to flower immediately that, that's very typical of the 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 um um dream characteristics i mean time doesn't play anything things are condensed things things are speeded up but that's that's standard of dreams when like that would be within object permanence and object constancy there is no rule there is no tempo things get transformed and by the way you can work backwards you can go go back from being an adult to being an embryo it's fun but 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 isn't it isn't the butler's dream um 
I mean, obviously connected to the job he, he had and he was holding for yeah. a while. Yes. Right. So it's, that- always, it's always it's always dressed up in that. In other words, most of us who are not psychotic don't have dreams of amoebas that become mm-hmm. senators and then become a space rocket. That doesn't happen. It's usually um things that are fairly reality constrained and then it starts pulling at them. Well, you, you don't really have to be who you are. You can be transformed into someone else, but usually not into a, an electric shaver. That doesn't happen. Okay, so I'm not surprised that somebody, that what the, the elements of the dreams are always um, reality markers in your life. You don't start is with it, things. So like is it possible that, that, there's, that, that the butler has very strong feelings uh, for Paro, the fact that he, in other words, the job that he had, it wasn't just that it gave him respect yes, and a position. Yes. Okay. So the that's fact- the first one. Yes, that, that's the first thing that came to my mind, that what we're having these descriptions of these grapes and whatever, that these are substitutions for relationships with. And, you know, you, you know, the reputation, of course, of, um, you know, shall we say, Egyptian men of leisure, what, you know, what butlers were there for and what it was all about. So in a sense, it's, it's saying, okay, we have a competition here, so to speak. Only one guy can win, at least in terms of, shall we say, Joseph's fantasies, right? You can't have two guys winning, which sounds eerily familiar with him and the brothers competing for the father's um, um, whatever. And then he's going to say, which one am I going to identify with? Which one? Will will win and, and and in his mind there has to be some association oh, with him. Well, so well, you go from the sheaves and you go to the grapes. There's very much of a um, well, similarity there, whereas between well, the sheaves well, and the well, and the rocks and the and the and the and the bread, there isn't so much similarity. When you say also that you know, assuming you know, these two jobs, the the head of um, the Danish maker and the one and the one in the winter. Uh-huh. Drinking wine uh, is definitely the type of thing that when Paro drinks it, it's not just it's not just to guzzle down the food. It obviously yeah, gets we, him. We remember Noah. We remember Noah right. very well. It gets him we, into a good mood. And we remember Lot. Okay, and yeah. that's the choice. Will it be a Noah response or a Lot response? And we know where uh, this is all going. <laughs> okay, so basically, this is a, you know the, the the Paro's inebriation is is a wish fulfillment for yes. the for for the butler and, and for the narrator of this entire um story uh, okay I may... of the civilized world at this time it also presents us with the duality and pairs these are all paired people everything is coming in double messages though if you look at it the messages are slightly different from each other because they have to in in a sense be um multi-satisfying of usually antithetical determinants that are coming up is it Yay or nay? Is it the he or she? That kind of stuff. Go ahead, please. Oh, so, so I. Am, by the way, as we know from the biblical description, that uh, before uh, Paro says the dream over to Yosef, to Joseph, uh, he actually went to many, many uh, of his advisors to try to get uh, a an answer to that. So let's assume, let's just role play here that one of the, he was able to go into the future and he was able to get uh, Sam Juni. So here is Paro uh, speaking to you. Doc, walking on the edge of the Nile River, 
And suddenly, out of the Nile, seven fat cows, really, really thick, really thick, thick, thick cows. With, right? and, and, and they were pretty. They actually looked, they were very nice, like, like, like the best looking cows. And they came out of the river and they started grazing. They started like grazing and, and, and eating. And the next thing I knew, as they were grazing, seven other cows came out. And, and they were really, like, really shabby looking. And, and really, I mean, I hadn't seen cows that looked so bad. They, right? I didn't see any cows. I mean, we got a lot of cows in Matrayim, and I haven't seen any of them that looked as bad as these guys. And then the the those those skinny cows, those like barely you know, barely had any meat on them at all. They ate. They just ate the seven other cows. They ate them. And what was really strange was after they ate them, you couldn't even tell the difference. They looked just as bad as those other cows as, as, as they had done before. And the first cows were gone. Anyway, then I woke up. Okay, there's another one. So there were these seven full of these good ears of grain. In these ears of grain, but they were growing on one big stalk. And suddenly, seven other ears of grain grew growing behind them. Those second ones were shriveled and thin, and they were scorched by the east desert wind. And then, you know, even though they don't even, I don't know how that could happen, but those thin ears, they, they swallowed up the seven good ones. Weird. Nobody could interpret this. I went to all these symbolists that, that, that work for me. Nobody can interpret. Dr. Juni, what do you say? Okay. So I have to say the psychoanalytic perspective in terms of psychosexual theory, but inter, interpersonal, okay? Let us talk about um, um, people who have um, some conflict within them, whether they want to behave in a decent way, a nice way, a proper way, or they want to be nasty. And, and some of us actually concretize that as different spirits we have within us or different homunculi that are there, that are striving for perfection, but that competition is there. And this is most typical, shall we say, of um, budding adolescence, okay? Um, like, who am I? Am I really good? Am I really evil? And then you look at the stark description of the way um, Paro describes the, uh, the antithetical vectors here, right? Pretty phenomenal, beautiful, I don't know what they are, you know, fancy aristocratic cows, right? And then these nasty, mean, ugly, scrawny looking, the competition. And then what happens, of course, is that the, um, the, uh, the evil ones or the bad ones or the bad part of you just destroys the other and is not influenced at all. It's like a, you never met these nice um, ears of corn or the uh, uh, aristocratic, well-behaved cows, and you're as much of a scoundrel as an evil one as anything. So that's the main thing I hear over here without my being constrained to interpret the rest of these little 
caveats and adjectives and, and verbs that are going on because to me, what matters really is the, the crux of the story. And the crux to me would be defined not and based on my mind, but by grilling Joseph or whoever is reporting this parable to say, tell me about the feelings. The only feelings I know is that he was like frightened and just felt like very, and I would want to know what is it that you were so excited about? And I wouldn't be surprised if they would say, it's the fact that they didn't leave a mark at all. You couldn't tell that these crony uh, cows had actually had an interaction with these noble cows and that they swallowed them up and destroyed them and they look just as crony, just whatever. The incorrigible cows or incorrigible ears of corn who come from like the devious uh, side of uh, the spirits and reality and whatever and just get destroyed. So again, do I have one theme with the others? No, but that's fine. I don't feel... Well, what about the fact that, that this is a this is Paro, that this is this is the president of the world speaking to right. you. Does that right. make a difference? Do you believe that those dreams, your dreams change when you now become uh, in a different type of position? No, he, still because, have the, no, he still has the same you, sort of adolescent You, you are always president of the world. Every child is omnipotent in his fantasies. Every child knows how to fly and is definitely... In, in this his secret phone booth is really Superman. And unfortunately, they get knocked every time they want to fly or um, show something or show their, their, their competence, they get knocked down to the point that all these fantasies are restricted to what they don't even consciously admit to. But in your mind, you are still up there. You want to be the father substitute and you want to take over the world. I, I, I want to segue to something else, which is just that what's going on over here a lot is ideas about dream interpretation. And that's something that I can't relate to in my also in the Gemara. I know the Gemara has all kinds of issues about, I know some stories I remember about Abaya and Rava, that one of them used to pay the uh, sorcerer who interpreted the dreams and one who didn't. And then the sorcerer would have interpretations, which would then wreak havoc with, I think it was with Rava. With Rava, yes. Rava's, Rava's, not with Abaya who paid up for it. (laughs) And, And their interpretation really is that when you have a dream, it's almost like you have a genie that, has or a voodoo doll that is in charge of you somehow, like an idol is. And then when you tell your dream to an interpreter, you're actually handing over the mastery over that genie to the interpreter who can then push buttons or put various pins into the voodoo. So there's a whole notion over here about a, a dream foretelling the future and the drill, dream having power over the future and the, interpret, the interpreter having powers, which, by the way, is the closest I can think in my fantasy of getting to omnipotence. Like I can push people around. I can determine what happens to the whole world. I can determine what happens to society simply because I'm going to be the interpreter of these people's um, spiritual life and then influence them. So that that's quite an omnipotent uh, um, position that Joseph is put into. And of course, he's nice enough to be PC and say, no, it's not me. It's God that's doing it. Ah. I don't know if that was a line or he really felt that. Otherwise, you can say God can help you as well. He doesn't have to help me. There's no question about it that the 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 prominence that he achieves is indicated 
indicates how important this role was of sure. dream interpretation. Yosef it, wasn't it's the actually first. the ability. It's almost like when you think of exorcism or the ability to get someone infected with the spirit. This is someone who is in charge of people's fortunes, which are like, I guess, the handle to the fortunes or misfortunes is the particular dream. So that's a whole facet that I'm not getting into because I, I can't relate to it on a personal level, but I can tell you that within Israel, this is alive. I don't know the Sephardi culture that well, as well as I know the Arab culture, but it is alive among a significant percentage of Israeli citizens, to say the least. And that's something that I'm avoiding here. Well, well, well you know, just, you know, if we know that what, the way Joseph interpreted it, and we know that, and Paro was very happy with that, and that's why I was trying to get your angle on. Part of the reason why it's it's almost explicit in the text that this is a dream that sees me as the king, and that these dreams are about what's going to happen and what my role might be as the king of Mitzrayim and really the whole civilized world. And mm-hmm. what you have said to me, the way I, 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 I think I understand, is that he might have become king, but his dreams are essentially the same type of dreams anyone would have, even right. though, even though the, in, your, in your day job, you have the weight of the world upon you, your dreams are going to take you back into some on things that are somewhat primal. That, right. That's that's what you would say. Of course, Joseph did not say that. And that's part of the reason yes. why he got the position he did. Joseph got a position because, you know, th- as, as we know from our sages, that the other dream interpreters made it very personal and Joseph made it global. And that global aspect of the dream is what uh, is what allowed him to ascend. You're saying that the same, the dreams that Joe Biden has is no different than the dreams than than any factory worker would have. Although it probably would be cloaked by um, uh, concrete markers, which are very different than the peasant has about his tractor, about his cows. I just want to express one more point, which I think is highlighted in some of the narrative. Compulsive in nature. And to me, it's called the, the confession imperative. In other words, when you have dreams that basically um, tip the... Um, unconscious aspects of your wishes, which are not socially acceptable and not personally acceptable, and they're there, you have a need to confess them. And you go to whoever it is you need to confess to. And in Joseph's case, it was the brothers who were really the target of the, shall we say, uh, mass aggression in those dreams. And you feel you have to tell them almost as a way of expiating your guilt. I don't know how to generalize that to power at all, but the, the need to confess, the, 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 the you have to tell it. Like, eh, what do I have to? You just have to tell it. Now, it might be that Paro actually, it's probable that he actually believed that this was a message he was getting from the deities about what's going to happen. But the, the, the confession compulsion is quite strong there. And I don't see it as fitting in content-wise to anything I've said, but it's the overall aura is that this is ain't just a joke. This is something that I need to get out, even if it's going to get me, you know, thrown to a pit with scorpions, it doesn't matter. I have to get this out. I have to share this. Well, let me tell you an idea that, that suggested, especially from Paro's first dream, if I would be hearing it as, <laughs> as your student who, is, who has gained from your uh, you know, insights, uh, the insights that you've given me, um, it seems to me like he's dreaming about death 
it seems to me that he's dreaming about how annihilation. In other words, the self is going to die. The knowledge that we gain as we get older, that this 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 youthful visage that we have, this this excitement that we have in life, this I, I, this almost perfection, this Adonis-like perfection that these cows have, and now the specter of these other cows. The primitive them. forces will take over. Right. And eventually you will get old and you will die. And eventually everything dies. You will, you will be supplanted by unthinking um, evil forces. And they you will never even able to tell on those forces that they ever saw anything except for filth and garbage and aggression and plunder. Or, again, I was saying something a little bit different. I would say that these forces are really the forces of of, of the old dying figure, these these cows that seem to be so uh, decrepit and 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 loose, uh, these are these are people in their last stages of life, and that's what life ends up being. The, the oh wow! Image okay, we have, I see. I see. Okay, okay, the, okay. The, the, the last image that we have. Your name is Erickson. Okay, <laughs> no, and now Erickson's theory is basically based on the fact that we start dying as soon as we start rowing, and that ultimately you are going to go into despair and uh, chaos or entropy. Sure, sure. That's that's an interesting statement. I wouldn't do that because, of course, Erickson rebelled against Freud, so we can't pay him too uh, much but, homage. But, but, but okay. that is definitely a perspective that rings very true with, the, the, with this kind of description. Yes, right, right. Paro, not so much with Russell, but with right. Paro, right. And, and, of and, course, and, I would try to spin it into an edible um, perspective from the father who is getting old and dying and being supplanted by the new bulls or the new chimpanzees in, in, in the harem with the clan there. But sure, that makes a lot of sense. And I would say that most um, uh, contemporary psychologists, or at least psychological um, um, sociologists, would see things your way rather than mine. But that's, okay. that's close. Uh, well, that's look, I, I would call beginner's luck. I, especially, I would say, a person who in his day job is very concerned with their legacy in the world. Someone who, and we hear this about presidents or any people who achieve positions of power, I think the idea of imminent death uh, approaching that whatever they do, they're not going to, it's not going to last. I think it hounds them much more than someone who, you know, who, who sort of like, you know, is, is accepted the fact that he's just a plebeian in society, but but someone who has been, has been uh, pampered and been raised to almost, you know, godlike status for what he can do and what he can do in his culture and how important he is. And remember, in in ancient Egypt, there were monuments that were built that were supposed to last forever to the glory of these great people. Sure. And and when they recognized that, despite the mummification and everything that they would live again, I think deep inside of them they they looked at an, at, at that future. That was hounding them, and that was something that um, mm-hmm. you know not be not men be able to do anything. Sure. Uh, right? It doesn't really explain the um, it doesn't explain the the number of cows. Uh, the, no, 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 no. What we're doing here is just explain exploring one element which strikes the analyst as prominent. But there's no question that there's multi multiple determinants in dreams, and if somebody can afford it, a patient can afford it, we can go through every single one. 
but it, it goes, now it's, you hit the one with the most variance that explains the most of the phenomenon and you keep going down. But each is true and they don't contradict each other, even if factually they contradict each other. They may pull you in different directions right. because we all have ambivalent motives which operate side by side. So nothing of what we're saying here, this is the beauty of the infallibility of psychoanalysis because no matter what you say, you say, yeah, you too. Yeah, that too. You can, you can never contradict it. Yes. Okay. Well, yeah, and one last little point is that um, in the society that Faro uh, lived, there was a, a, a great difference almost opposites between uh, animals and grain. They almost, the grain, they were fetishists. They had developed grain to the ultimate level. The idea of the head butler, you know, the head baker, I talked about Danishes, but they were actually uh, experts in, in, in developing grains mm-hmm. to, their, to their utmost. And this was something that they were living they in. Developed, they developed the, the processing of agriculture. To yes, Where, whereas the animals... Oh, and, and we and there's no reason for us to deny what the what the Bible says to us that the animals were sort of they were around, but they were given a a different sort of status. They weren't just seen as providing meat and sustenance. There was something about uh, the fact that they were I don't know if they were vegetarians uh, exactly, but they clearly did not raise these cows mm-hmm. in order to slaughter them and have meat from them. There was something mm-hmm. about them that was had a certain grandeur. It was I a assume certain... they were used for milk and for wool. Some of them, right? Yeah. But they were not meant. They they were meant to to die like people, and that's why I I, I emphasize again that there was a you know in fact the Bible the Torah calls them gods. The Torah says that they it was considered slaughtering their gods. Mm-hmm. And, and I would say, again, even without speaking to you, Sam, that in many ways there was an affinity uh, to those that was that was different. I mean, and, and again, even from an etymological standpoint, par, paro, right? I mean, of course. Oh, that, boy. Okay. Wait, wait. <laughs> but we again, it's not the language, of course, is, as you say, it's filtered through the Bible. I don't know in ancient Egypt what the language was. But I think there's there, there, there's clearly an, an affinity there to something that represents, you know, the the soul or the existence, the human existence versus mm-hmm. the sustenance, the eating part. I mean, the second dream that he has in the same night is about food. And, and again, mm-hmm. this was something that they had. I, I called it a fetish before. Maybe that's the wrong term, but they they were much more into food development than almost any other culture. And maybe that that is something that has a certain psychological power as well. Uh, the amount that you like, you know, Sam, we talk about what's happened today, which was not true when we were uh, younger. Look at, look at the amount of foodies that are everywhere, the amount of people that, that the amount of time that they put into describing all the way foods are made and developed. I don't know what that indicates uh, from your perspective, but I think it definitely uh, indicates should... a regressed society rather than talking about achieving things that are meaningful for society. We talk things that appeal to the most basic needs. Addressing them, but but dressing, but 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 it's dressed up almost with you know. Uh, oh you sure, know. it's dressed up with class. Just look, hedonism was dressed up with class in Greece as well. That's okay. Yeah. Well, right. Doctor J, we stray, but we stray. 
<laughs> Dr. J, thank you so much for uh, for a allowing pleasure, you. A pleasure doing play acting for a change. I'm excited. <laughs> okay, take care. We'll catch you hopefully next time, and hopefully this provides for you some sort of guide uh, uh, through uh, this part of the Bible. Be well. Take care, Sam. Thanks again. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.